0: Well, good morning again. It's so good to see all of you here in our auditorium worshiping worshiping with us today. I can see some of you, these bright lights, keep me from seeing you up in the upper decks there, but I know you're there. I also want to extend a very warm welcome to those who are joining us in our online broadcast, whether that's your living room, your kitchen table, or in your car. If you're in your car, don't look at the screen, just listen. That'd be better that way. Well, friends, we launched a New Year sermon series entitled, This Changes Everything, at the beginning of January to consider the six core values of Christ Church of Oakbrook, which emanate right out of the scriptures. And the first weekend, we heard from Pastor Dan about what authentic, genuine worship was all about as the initial foundation for our relationship with God. We worship Him in spirit and in truth. And then the attractive witness that comes out of that. Last week, Pastor Eric uh, talked to us about intentional growth, being very focused on growing our souls and learning to uh, apply spiritual practices and then how that fits into our community life, which is so vital and important. Today, we're covering the last two of those six core values of Christ Church, which are God's life-changing love, which has first transformed us, but also then works through us to transform others' lives through our Loving and kind and generous service to others. And friends, there's no better passage of scripture that I can think about that defines and describes this life changing love of God than a very familiar passage to most of us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Please listen with your hearts as I read this passage for us. Love is very patient and kind, never jealous or envious. Never boastful or proud. Never haughty or selfish or rude. Love does not demand its own way. It is not irritable or touchy. It does not hold grudges and will hardly even notice when others do it wrong. It is never glad about injustice, but rejoices when truth wins out. If you love someone... You will be loyal to them no matter what the cost. You will always believe in them and always expect the best of them. And you will always stand your ground in defending them. Love never fails. Will you join me in a word of prayer as we open our hearts before the Lord today? His word is living, it's active, it's powerful, and it transforms us by both hearing it but also then as we live into it. I invite you to also pray for me as a preacher-teacher here today that God will use my words to glorify him and bring the best benefit to each and everyone who gathers here. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us your word to be both a light and a lamp, to guide us in every moment of our lives. Today, God, we ask you to illuminate your word into our minds and also by that same Holy Spirit empower us to live into and to live out the things from your word we'll consider together today. Be glorified in our midst through your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, friends, most of us have heard this scripture that I read a moment ago many, many times, mostly at weddings, right? At wedding ceremonies, they share this passage all the time. It conveys such a warm and fuzzy feeling about the wonders of marital bliss and sounds so very easy and simple to live into in those moments. But love, this kind of agape love, the unconditional love of God that he calls us to is no simple matter. Speaking of weddings, some years back, about 38 years ago this month, I met my wife-to-be in that time, and her best friend got married in January of that year. And I was not invited to the wedding, but uh, Carol went there, stood up in the wedding, and at the most sacred moment in her friend April's wedding that year, they, the couple knelt down on a kneeler facing the, the altar in this direction, and the minister was there in a very solemn moment to receive communion, and the whole audience burst out laughing. It seemed very inappropriate until I saw the video of the wedding, when in fact, the best man had taken white paint... And on the groom's two shoes, one on one shoe, help, and the other one, me. So as he knelt down, everyone saw, help me. Um, that was a little surprise. But friends, when we talk about this kind of love, we all need help. Because this passage is not just for marriage marital couples. It's, not, it's often read at the weddings, but it's for all of us. Every believer needs to know the blueprint of God's own heart which this passage is, so we will know what we're growing towards and one day going to be like in Christ. So scriptures say to us that God is love in 1 John, so we can easily insert Jesus' name at the front of all of these statements out of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So it would sound like this. Jesus is very patient and kind. Jesus is never jealous, never envious, never boastful, And never proud. Jesus is never haughty or selfish or rude. And listen to this. Jesus does not demand his own will, his own way, or force it upon people. Jesus is never irritable or touchy, which is good news for us. And he does not hold grudges, which is really wonderful. But, friends, he is never glad about injustice, but rejoices whenever truth prevails Jesus is loyal to us no matter what the cost. He always believes in you, expects the best of you, and always stands his ground in defending you. Jesus never fails. I hope that's very reassuring to you as you hear. That's how Jesus thinks and feels and acts towards you. It's pretty obvious that Jesus is all those things, isn't it? But what if you took your name? Or I took my name and put it in front of these qualities. It might go something like this. Rick is very patient and kind. Hmm, well, sometimes. Rick is never jealous, envious, boastful, or proud. Fail. Uh, Rick is never haughty or selfish or rude. Well, false. No, I can't put my name in front of those qualities, friends. I really want to have all these qualities in increasing measure. But I'm a long way from that perfection. None of us measure up to this standard of this kind of life-changing love, yet. But it's God's intent and his purpose to transform us, you and I, into his very image, the image of Jesus Christ. And one day, because God's promised it, your name will fit perfectly there on all those qualities. But for now, I actually use this passage regularly in my spiritual life. I don't know how many of you have had the opportunity to take a COVID test, anywhere along. I've taken 12, okay, okay. And nine of them were negative. One, well, three, I took three in succession to guarantee I had COVID back in September. I didn't believe it. The first one was very faint. The next one was very faint. I went to a clinic. You got it, buddy. Um, But you know what? I like to use this passage as a little heart test on myself. Is to say, Lord, as I look at these qualities, I want to grow to be more patient and kind. I want to be less judgmental. I want to be more like you and let the Holy Spirit help me to do that. Well, friends, what we're going to consider today in the Scripture is a jump start for the cold and hardened places in our hearts and a clear and guaranteed path from God towards rapid growth in this kind of love that any and every one of us as Christ followers can and really must take to love like Jesus does. And believe it or not, Jesus makes it more simple to grow in this kind of love than we'd ever imagine and grow in character with one single verse, he can spark and fuel our transformation and make us more loving and actual indeed. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, the, towards the middle of the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he said this simple thing. Do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. I love how Jesus can distill down a large chunk of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch and all the prophetic books, into one phrase and make it really simple. This is commonly called the golden rule, and the very first word is pivotal, pivotal, do. You see, when we become doers of the word, and not just ones who listen to it or consider it or even study it, we begin to see that God's transforming work in us is Changing us. Because of his spirit's work in each one of us, we can begin to live into our new selves, our true selves, made new by him, and begin to leave our old and selfish selves behind. Let's look what I, another passage of scripture I think will be helpful for us, what I call the other John three sixteen. Everybody knows John three sixteen in the Gospel, but first John three sixteen and seventeen are very powerful on this topic. This is what John says. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid his life down for us, and we ought to lay our lives down for our brothers and sisters. And then he defines it. He puts some real specifics on it. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? And then this pivotal Sentence, dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Actions and in truth. You see, the kind of love the scripture talks about and the kind of love that God himself has already demonstrated towards each of us is an action verb, not just a fuzzy sentiment that disappears and comes and goes and we feel like something. He made a decision and sent his son. He so loved us. The Apostle John, in this very same passage, goes on to reveal one of the most profound and life-changing truths in the entire Bible. In the next few verses after what I just read. Which tells us the the transformative effect of demonstrating love by our actions. How that will change us. So verse 18 said, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. And then this key verse. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and we receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. Do you see the link here? When we see ourselves behaving differently, when we love with deeds that are obvious and clear in action and in truth, we look at ourselves, hey, I'm actually changing. God's actually doing something in me. I'm doing kind deeds. I'm thinking of others and meeting the needs of others ahead of my own. God, you are doing a marvelous work. And that gives us confidence. We realize, God, you are real. You're changing me, even the bad parts about me, into something good, into the image of Jesus. And it gives us great confidence in prayer. That we receive from him everything we ask. Would you like more of your prayers to be answered? I'll vote for that 100 times out of 100. Doing loving deeds gives us confidence when we come before the throne of God. Actions are the key. Loving is doing. Don't wait for a warm and fuzzy feeling to overtake you before you act. Act and do loving things, and your heart will produce the feelings. That is the secret of the scripture. Sacrificial love does not come naturally to any of us as humans. Don't be disappointed. It doesn't, we don't come out of the box with sacrificial love built into us. We have a sinful nature which is selfish, not other-centered. It only comes supernaturally through the work of the Spirit of God who resides in us, each and every one of us at the core of our being. Sacrificial living is something we must grow into by actions and deeds that we do in love. Pastor and author Adam Hamilton puts it this way. This love is not a feeling, but a way of living and being. Practice towards others. It is to seek the good of the other, to bless, encourage, care for, and serve the other. It is the essence of what the prophet Micah commanded in 6.8, to do justice and to love kindness. Doing justice, loving kindness, and practicing love. These are intertwined, he says. Doing justice entails practicing kindness. Practicing kindness is an expression of love and justice. Well, friends, God creates all kinds of opportunities for us to serve in these ways, sometimes sacrificially, and sometimes they come up like that unexpectedly. Many, many years ago, my father, who had enlisted in the Air Force in 1944, was Uh, On a training mission, he was based at Alexandria Air Force Base in Louisiana in those days. He was on a B-17, a crew member, and they were doing a night training mission, flying over Texas, heading on a cross-country mission there, training to fly at night and get through all of that. Right around Waco, Texas, they're about that far west at this point, my father, who was a radio operator in the the belly of that, that big plane, He looked forward. He smelled smoke and saw smoke coming out from under the door of the bomb bay, which was just forward in the plane to him. So he immediately got up and opened the door to find that it was ablaze with fire. The plane was on fire, filled with smoke. He said, I've got to notify the pilot of this. So he made even further, went up to the flight deck, found the co-pilot asleep, okay? And woke him up and said, we better tell the pilot this plane's on fire. Got up to the cockpit, the flight deck, and the pilot, the captain of the plane, was already gone. He'd already bailed out. He had radioed back to everybody else on the plane, the emergency signal, get out of the plane now, it's going down, but the wires had been melted by the fire they figured out, and no one heard. He's gone, the co-pilot was asleep, and every, everybody else in the front part of the plane got warned and they got their parachutes on and got up my dad. In a moment of just acting sacrificially, he said, I've got to notify the tail people. There's six people back in the tail of this big ship. Ran back through the flames, instead of just taking his parachute and jumping out, made his way back through the fire, and woke up that entire crew, which was sound asleep also. When they'd all jumped out, he got his parachute and jumped out behind him. As he was drifting slowly to the darkened ground below him, he saw that B-17 go down explode. It had both a, few, a lot of fuel on it and oxygen tanks. He acted in love and saved their lives. That's what Jesus did for us. We may never be in a situation that dramatic, but maybe you would. Let love govern and guide you, and that will model what Jesus has done for us. Author James Allen said it this way those who would accomplish little must sacrifice little. Those who would achieve much must sacrifice much. Those who would attain highly must sacrifice greatly. So, where do we start? What exactly are we supposed to do? If God's calling to do loving deeds and actions, you know what? The scriptures make this amazingly and abundantly simple and clear. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, which immediately follows the verse that says, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourself. So our salvation is not what's in question. But God done more than just save us. Verse 10 says this, for we are God's own handiwork, his workmanship, his masterpiece, as one translation says it, recreated in Christ Jesus, born anew, a new nature, that we may do those good works which God predestined, planned beforehand for us, taking paths which he prepared ahead of time, that we should walk in them, living the good life which he prearranged and made ready for us to live. God not only planned our salvation introducing himself to us and bringing us into the family of God, he orchestrated that every day of our lives there are good works ready to go, ready for us to walk into. If we just have our hearts filled with his love and have our eyes filled with this kind of compassion, then we will see what he's prepared. Friends, whatever moves you to compassion, whatever moves you to tears when you look at it, that's the direction to go in. But I fear we've all too often missed God's created opportunities. They're all there for us every day because our focus has been elsewhere. Author and pastor Erwin McManus many years ago in Chasing Daylight, a marvelous book, says it this way. We put so much emphasis on avoiding evil that we become virtually blind to the endless opportunities for doing good. We've defined holiness through what we separate ourselves from rather than what we give ourselves to. I am convinced the great tragedy is not the sins that we commit, which God forgives, but the life that we fail to live. Friends, as I said a moment ago, the needs that are right in front of us are glaringly obvious when we have our compassion glasses on, and then be prepared to act and do what love motivates us to do. For each of us to get better clarity on the specifics of how we live into that loving, caring kind of life that God has created for us, I'm going to suggest two resources, not to go deep on them today, but two things that will help us tremendously. One is a little booklet created by Peter C. Peter Wagner, Fuller professor many years ago, called Finding Your Spiritual Gifts. It's a six-page self-assessment. You could do it at home. If you don't like what it says, take it again. You might get different results, but no. It'll, it's a marvelous a self-assessment. It costs six bucks. You can get it on Amazon. Uh, Have it tomorrow if you want. We've got a few copies here in the church. I'd be glad to help you acquire those if you'd like as well. Marvelously, find out how God's gifted you because you're always going to be more effective if you're doing it in line with what God has gifted you to do. The second book is called Now Discover Your Strengths. It's based on the Finder that Don Clifton many years ago created. This will help you realize all that treasure of resource that God's put in you so that you can best help others. Those are for another sermon another day, but I give you those as opportunities to look into them yourself. But I'm convinced that God has already equipped you and I, every single one of us, to be literal world changers. We just need to begin to see ourselves that way. You matter. Your life is important. What you do today is important. But friends, ultimately, the kind of love, this kind of love we're talking about requires a decision to act for the benefit of another, no matter what. Author or speaker, Leo Biscaglia, many years ago said, don't spend your precious time asking, why isn't the world a better place? Lots of people are asking that nowadays, aren't they? Looking around, this is a disaster. Everything is bad. Everything's in conflict. Everything's out of place. Don't Take your time asking that question. It'll only be time wasted. The question is, how can I make it better? How can I make it better? Not they make it better or someone else make it better. How can I make it better? To that, he says, there is an answer. Answering that question, what can I do to make it better, and putting love into practice requires some commitments and decisions on our part, which are well within our grasp. And no one ever said it better or did it better in my lifetime that I know of than Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. when he said this, the ultimate measure of a person is not where they stand in moments of comfort and convenience, but where they stand at times of challenge and controversy, and that's today. The true neighbor will risk their position, their prestige, even their life for the welfare of others. In dangerous valleys and hazardous pathways, they will lift some bruised and beaten person to a higher and more noble life. Wow, what a powerful challenge. Dr. King lived this principle out and paid the ultimate price himself when his life was snuffed out by an assassin's bullet. But his legacy has lived on for decade after decade after decade the changes he began to do. He once said, no one really knows why they are alive until they know what they die for. He surely lived into and modeled that kind of truth. He knew what he was on this planet to do and was willing to die for it. Well, friends, if you're like me, you feel I could never live up to uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s world-changing influence. That he was a uniquely special and called man of God. But friends, we can Every single one of us make practical decisions that will definitely make our world a better place every single day. I'm going to share two simple quotes from a great little book called The Hero Code that one of our church members gave me this past year that are a great start in the direction of intentional and consistent, compassionate and sacrificial living. I've got lots of books that are 2000 pages, these big huge things up on my but this is The Hero Code, a great little it's a little book. One of those little ones you can just enjoy it and soak it up in a few just a few minutes. The first thing I want to share from that book is I will be kind and compassionate to at least one person every single day and expect nothing in return. That's the first commitment. The second one, I will be kind and compassionate to at least one person By giving a little of my time, my talent, and my treasure to those in need every day without fail. One person, one day at a time. Friends, every one of us can make that kind of commitment and live into it with our time, our talent, our resources in one way, shape, or form or another. Only when we start living into this, friends, do we understand what Jesus meant when he said, It is more blessed to give than it is to receive. He knew exactly what he was talking about because he wired us in his image and that's what his image is. Jesus meant by this that there's something about giving that blesses the giver. We don't do it for the blessing, but it actually happens. Friends, it brings joy to us and gives us a sense of fulfillment and meaning when we meaning when we help others. A multitude of scientific studies have reached the same conclusion. Imagine that, scientists have figured out that what Jesus said is true. Giving actually blesses the giver. Giving your time, your money, your talent to help others doesn't only make others' lives better, it makes you and I better. The research is complete. It reveals that giving to your church or your community will significantly increase your happiness, health, and sense of well-being. I'll vote for that deal. People say, well, God wants us to be joyous but not happy. Nonsense. He wants us to experience the joy and happiness that he's created us to live out, and that comes through sacrificial giving. The published research, though, reveals there's actually seven specific scientific benefits to helping others that are suffering. And Number one, helping others can help you live longer. Serving on a regular basis actually produces a longer and healthier lifespan. Secondly, altruism, or giving to others, is contagious. When you start doing it, Others watch you do it, there's a very good chance they will do it too. You can start a revolution in your neighborhood. You can start a revolution in your workplace. Thirdly, helping others makes us happy. This is a big study. Sociologists tracked 2,000 people over a five-year period and found that Americans who described themselves as very happy, this only one group described themselves as very happy, these are the ones who had volunteered about six hours per month hour and a half a week. That's all it took. And they were very happy. Helping others can also help with chronic pain. And you know, when I get old, I know, I'll know what pain is. I get pain every day I wake up with it in different parts of my body. Fifthly, helping others actually lowers blood pressure, especially for older people, by as much as 40%. Sixth, helping others promotes positive behaviors in teens. According to sociologists, teenagers who volunteer and help others have better grades and a much higher self-image and self-esteem. And last but not least, helping others gives us a sense of purpose and satisfaction. So friends, the goal here is to steadily grow in our generous service and generosity. And that generous act might be something as simple as shoveling someone's driveway. Mine actually has about an inch on it. How many of you have snow in your driveway? Didn't blow away yet. I hope it melts. I, I don't really need anybody helping. I'm, I'll be fine. Um, it, it, it might be doing yard work for an elderly couple in your neighborhood, or it might even be an anonymous gift you to someone in need. It could be a donation to a cause that matters to you, like feeding starving children. It might be serving at our food pantry or a soup kitchen, buying groceries and dropping them off for a neighbor that you know is recently unemployed. It could be increasing giving to churches and mission organizations and ministries that help the poor here and around the world. Maybe as simple as serving in our church nursery or children's ministry or using your musical talents here like our wonderful worship team has done and does it week in and week out. It could be joining our Caring Connection team here at Christ Church. Every month makes phone calls to shut-ins and older people over the age of 80 just to check in and to let somebody know they are loved, they're loved. It could be using your office skills here at the church or another uh, volunteer opportunity, friends. If you're interested in serving at Christ Church, we're going to make it really easy for you. We've got these wonderful cards out on our uh, literature racks and on some of the tables out in the narthex and in the atrium as you depart today. If you click on that little QR code there, is that on the screen? No, it's not. It's right here. Um, You'll find the card out there. It'll give you all the opportunities where we're looking to find people to serve the church. The opportunities are there serving generously shapes us and grows our heart to be like jesus heart but you know there actually might be some that would say to me well you know what rick i'm saved by grace by jesus work on the cross i really don't need anything i can just coast all the way to heaven well friends it is a fact that we are saved by grace plus nothing period that part is true but while there is exactly zero condemnation for those of us in Christ, Romans eight one says it, there is in fact great expectation from God who has given us such a great salvation. Zero condemnation, but great expectation. Jesus put it this way in Luke chapter twelve verse forty eight. Jesus said to those whom much is given, much will be expected. Well, when will this expectation be reconciled? I mean, who's really keeping score on all this stuff? Well, the fact is, it's of tantamount importance that we all know this. It says it many times in the scripture that everything we do, God is watching. And he's recording everything in this thing called the book of our life. Look it up. It's in the scripture. Everything we do during our entire life, by God's grace, our sins are blotted out by the blood of Christ. He's given us a free will, every one of us, to choose to do good. Even as Christ followers, we can choose to do evil, or sadly, is the case for some or so many, basically do no good by doing nothing. But, friends, there will be a day of reckoning for all Christ followers that has nothing to do with our salvation. So few really recognize this. We are saved by Jesus, we're in the Lamb's book of life, we enter heaven, and then every single one of us will face a final exam one on one with Jesus. It's actually an oral exam. The scripture reveals to us, says it right there in Romans, that every one of us will give an account of our lives, ourselves, to Jesus face-to-face. The goal is that he could reward us and and bless us and honor us, but we'll only be able to represent to him in those moments what we actually did, not what we thought about doing, prayed about doing, imagined doing, watched others do be what we did or didn't do. Do you think it would reduce your stress? Those of you that have taken final exams many years ago, or maybe more recently, some are students, you get finals coming up or midterms, those kind of things. Would it make it easier if the professor or teacher actually told you the answers to the test ahead of time? Easier to pass the test? Well, friends, this final exam that I'm going to read about here in a minute right out of Scripture, Jesus actually is giving us the answer key in advance. reminds me of a story I read some time back where a college professor down in Texas yeah, a professor of a logic class was giving a final exam for his students. Made a big deal, a big part of their grade. And he told the students, take one 8.5 by 11 piece of paper, put whatever you want on there, and bring it in to help you during the test. So all the students crammed everything they could on that one piece of paper back and front and entered the test room, and except one student sat there quietly with a blank piece of paper on his desk. Before the t- test is passed out, the other students said, What's the matter with you? Why didn't you put anything on that paper? how are you going to possibly pass this test? Didn't say a word. The professor passed out the test booklets. That clever student took that 8 by 11 piece of paper and put it on the floor next to his desk. And then he invited an advanced logic student to stand on the piece of paper and give him all the answers. <laughs> He's the only one that got an A on the test. The professor <laughs> applauded him. Well, that's what Jesus is doing for us in the passage I'm going to read. I want you to hear it this way. Listen to what the master tells us what will happen at the end. Matthew 25, 31 says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, this isn't a parable, this is a prediction, this is a promise, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate people one from another, the sheep on his right, the goats on his left, as a shepherd separates them. He will put the sheep there on his right, goats on his left. Then the king will say this to those on his right, the righteous. Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And then he describes what they did. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me i was sick and you looked after me i was in prison and you came to visit me the righteous will answer lord what are you talking about when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you clothe you when did we see you sick or in prison and go and visit you and the king with a smile on his face That's not in the scripture, I just added that. Um, Will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of my brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. That's the answer. That's the final test. He doesn't ask how many times you went to church, though you're all getting a gold star in the story of your life for being here today or watching online. A little facetious there. He didn't say how many Bible verses you memorized or how many classes you took or how many seminars you went to, but those, those are things we do to build ourselves up, right? We need to do that. Absolutely, yes. But Jesus is evaluating, what'd you do with that? What'd you do with your time, your talent, your treasures, and did you help the people in most desperate need? Friends, when it comes to this, it won't count if we just thought about it. It won't count if we just told other people they should or suggested it for them. But I want to get practical on just one of them. the very first thing he said. When I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. Do You know, the average person blinks about 17 times a minute, somewhere between 15 and 20, so 17 times. So now you're going to all think about blinking and stop listening to me. Sorry. But actually, 17 people die of starvation every minute of every day. So every time you blink, someone's dying needlessly of starvation. That works out to 25,000 people who will die of starvation today, Every day, more than 9 million per year. Since I started preaching this sermon today, that means about 500 people have died of starvation. Jesus makes it really plain what touches him. We can't touch him in heaven as much as we'd like to embrace him, but we can most certainly touch his heart here on earth anytime we choose by expressing compassion and love to those in need. I want you to do a little bit math with me. You're probably, most of you are doing the math. Is, When's he going to get done? It's about time. Um, let's do a little math together. Today, about 1,000 people will have heard this sermon, both in person here, been in the two services and online, roughly around 1,000 or so. What if all of us, just 1,000 or so of us, made the commitment to do one compassionate deed, one kind thing, tangible thing, every day? That would mean every day this coming year, between now and next January, Every day, a 1,000 good deeds would be done, adding up to 365,000 compassionate deeds. That is world-changing love. We can, you and I can, make this world a better place. God wants it and wills it. I want to close with a little story that comes from an anonymous source. A person once fell into a pit and couldn't get themselves out. A subjective person came along and said, I feel for you down there. An objective person came along and said, well, it's logical that someone would fall in that pit at some point. A Pharisee said, only bad people fall into pits. A mathematician calculated how he fell into the pit. A news reporter, guess what, wanted the exclusive story on the pit. A fundamentalist said, you deserve your pit. Scientists calculated the pressure necessary to get him out of the pit. An evolutionist said, you are a rejected mutant destined to be removed from the evolutionary cycle. The county inspector asked if he had a permit to dig the pit. A professor gave him a lecture, the elementary principles of a pit. An evasive person came along and avoided the subject of his pit altogether. A self-pitying person said, you haven't seen anything until you've seen my pit. An optimist said, things could be worse. A pessimist said, things will get worse. Jesus, seeing the man, took him by the hand and lifted him out of the pit. That's what a genuine genuine disciple of Jesus does. Always being the kind of person who, with God's gifts and talents and resources, lives out that golden rule and gives regular demonstrations of what God's heart looks like when we touch people on earth. No matter what our vocation or our profession is, this, my friends, is our purpose in life. So that on that day, with a capital D, when we meet Jesus face-to-face, Jesus will be able to say to us, and I know he wants to, I felt cared for when you fed me. I felt warmed when you clothed me in the dead of winter and I had no clothing. I felt reassured when you visited me when I was lonely and afraid. I felt uplifted when you looked after me when I was sick. I felt so loved when you welcomed me in when I was a stranger in your midst. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the power in your word. It's living, it's active. We ask you, Lord, to strengthen us from the inside out and to fill us afresh with the fire of your Holy Spirit's compassion. Give us more than eyes to see, which we trust you for that, but move upon us moment by moment, day by day, to move in the direction of your love and compassion and bring your change to this hurting world. We ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen.